Thanks for tuning in to My Weight Live, the podcast where we talk to medical experts about the latest research and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at myweightwhattoknow.com or search My Weight What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Hi, everyone. Welcome to My Weight Live. Tonight, we're going to be talking with Dr. Sasha High all about weight loss as it relates to women and the different stages of our lives. Dr. High is the medical director of the High Metabolic Clinic in Toronto, and she'll be sharing her wisdom with us on PCOS, menopause, insulin resistance, and more. Dr. High, we are so excited to get to speak with you tonight. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Ansley. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. So Dr. High, because this show is about women and weight loss, let's start by talking about a phenomenon we hear a lot about, a couple who starts on a weight loss journey together and the man ends up losing a lot more weight than the woman. Is it true that women can have a more difficult time than men when it comes to weight loss? And if so, why is that? Yes, I suspect many of your female viewers right now can relate and share in this frustration. Certainly anecdotally in my clinic, it would seem that men tend to lose weight more easily than women. Interestingly, the data is kind of mixed on this. So about half of weight loss trials show that yes, men have a greater absolute weight loss than women. And then the other half kind of shows that it's about the same, that there aren't really gender differences. And that was published in a systematic review looking at over 50 weight loss trials. A recent study called the Preview Study, published in 2018, found that when men and women were putting put on a low-calorie diet over eight weeks, men lost about 16% more weight than women. But what's interesting is that men tend to have more metabolic improvements than women do. So greater reduction in fat mass, lowering of heart rate, whereas women have a lowering of their good cholesterol, which is called your HDL, and a lowering of their fat-free mass, so a loss of lean muscle. And that actually is kind of problematic long-term. So yeah, not fair. Wow. Okay. Gosh, there's a whole lot to unpack. I'm really looking forward to the show. Dr. Hyatt, so do you recommend a different approach for weight loss for women kind of based on that? So I don't think the approach is necessarily different between men and women, but women certainly have some challenges that need to be addressed. So for example, women sometimes are dealing with hormonal factors. There's a condition called PCOS um, that can make weight loss more challenging. And so that should be looked into. That should be treated if it's if it's identified. Certainly, there are medications that women take sometimes for contraception. Um, there's medications women take for fertility, and both of those can also lead to weight gain. And then at menopause, kind of later on in, in a woman's life, there are changes in a woman's body that can uh, contribute to some challenges there. So I think, you know, all of those factors need to be looked into. I don't want to play into stereotypes, but studies do support the fact that women tend to struggle more with emotional eating than men do. And emotional eating is certainly a risk factor for weight gain. And so addressing the psychology should be should be considered for women as well. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to be talking about a lot of those things. So um, stay tuned, folks. You know, you alluded to this earlier, and it's something that we've heard a lot about from different experts, and that's the importance of lean muscle mass. So tell us a little bit about why this makes such a difference in reaching a healthier weight and maintaining it, and what women can do to kind of counterbalance losing that when we 
do lose weight. Lean muscle mass is really the biggest contributor to your metabolic rate. Muscle burns more calories than fat does. And so that's why sometimes men have an easier time losing weight because they tend to have a higher muscle mass. They're burning more calories. Their metabolic rate is somewhere between three and 10% higher than women. And so we know that even with aging, there's a lowering of muscle mass that contributes to less, a lowering of your metabolic rate. And with weight loss, there can be a loss of muscle mass as well, accompanying the loss of fat. And so for those reasons, it's especially important for both men and women, but I, I want to emphasize for women because sometimes women avoid doing resistance exercise or muscle building, strength building activity. And that's very, very important for maintaining weight loss over time. And it sounds like, especially as we get older too, if that lean muscle mass is going down, we need to be even more intentional about counterbalancing it. Absolutely. So aging can cause loss of muscle, weight loss causes loss of muscle, and then menopause also can wow. cause loss of muscle. So for all of those reasons, women need to be doing something, whether it's resistance bands or free weights or even body weight exercises to um, maintain and build muscle. So this is probably a good moment to talk about losing weight and what that actually involves if we want to be successful for the long run. You know, healthy eating and exercise habits are, of course, fundamental. But talk a little bit about why, for many people, diet and exercise alone aren't enough. I like to think about weight loss um, in five factors when I'm addressing a patient in front of me. So the first is addressing medical factors. So I mentioned sometimes medical conditions themselves or medications can be contributing to weight gain. And so it's really important to just take a thorough look at the medications and address alternatives if that's a possibility. And then there are also you know behavioral factors. So mood, stress, sleep, diet, and exercise, that's all part of behavioral. Psychological factors, as I mentioned. So um, are you eating in response to stress? Are you aware of your eating behaviors? Are you eating mindfully or sort of distractedly? Those are all important pieces. And then sometimes a person's biology is just very resistant to weight loss and all of that you know, behavior change isn't enough. And sometimes we need to use weight management medications to support a healthy weight long-term. There's also the fifth category is uh, considering bariatric surgery for those um, in whom it's indicated. So on the website, for your clinic, you describe weight as being neurohormonally regulated. And I guess that's kind of why that fourth and fifth component, that medications and bariatric surgery, those may be necessary for some people for managing obesity or excess weight over the long term. Is that, am I getting that right? What we understand about weight and about energy balance is that it's controlled centrally in the brain. And there are a few areas involved, but one important area is the reward center of the brain. We call that the mesolimbic pathway. Ways. And that is where, you know, your brain wants food when you're stressed because you're going to get a positive response in the brain. Um, dopamine is involved there where there is a release of dopamine in response to certain foods, high in sugar, high carb foods, high fat foods that gives a pleasure response. And then that actually uh, communicates with um, our memory and our emotions. So your brain starts to remember that it really felt good to eat that food. And so, you know, it kind of sets up a little bit of a cycle. And and this area of the brain is not a conscious area. So it's not like we can think ourselves out of that. Certainly there is a role for, you know, making conscious decisions about our food and mindful decisions. And we'd all like to think that that's really what's driving our behavior. But so often behavior is actually driven from these deeper centers of the brain that are subconscious. And really the only thing that can touch that area is medication. So Dr. High, a topic we hear a lot about when it comes to women and weight is menopause. And you referred to 
it earlier. Talk a little bit about menopause, what's happening in our body and why it results in weight gain for so many people. Yeah, so menopause is certainly a challenging time. It's accompanied by so many different symptoms and different changes in a woman's body. Um, Interestingly, the studies looking at weight in relation to menopause suggest that actually there isn't weight gain specifically associated with menopause. What causes weight gain is actually aging. But what happens with menopause is a change in body fat distribution. And so during menopause, there is an increased risk of developing central body fat distribution, so more belly fat. And what's um, important about that is that it's the central adipose tissue, that central body fat that contributes to increased cardiovascular disease. And in fact, cardiovascular disease is the number one risk of mortality in postmenopausal women. So are there recommendations that you might have or even treatments that, that might help mitigate some of those changes that might result in weight gain for women? I think the first thing that's really important to address is that hormone replacement therapy is not recommended as a weight loss strategy for menopausal women. And I get that question a lot. So I just kind of want to start out with that. However, if women are dealing with a lot of the symptoms of menopause, like hot flashes, then it might be important to consider um, hormone replacement therapy. And I'll give you an example of why. Sometimes women have such severe vasomotor symptoms or, or hot flashes that actually it affects their ability to exercise because it becomes so unpleasant. You know, if that's the case, then really they should be considering treatment. Menopause can be associated with psychological changes as well, and that can lead to mood disorders. And we know that mood disorders are associated with weight gain too. So those sorts of things need to be addressed as well. Menopause, as most women will tell you, can lead to difficulty with sleep. And sleep is such a big factor in terms of weight management. So all of these things should really be addressed um, probably by speaking to your healthcare provider if those are problems. So Dr. Hi, we got a voicemail recently from a listener asking about alcohol. Uh, Here is that question. This is Melba from Georgia, and my question has to do with alcohol and weight loss. Is it possible to have a glass of wine a few nights a week and still lose weight? Thank you so much. So, Dr. High, what would you say to this listener about whether it's possible to enjoy alcohol in a sensible way and still stay on track with weight management? I think that your words of enjoying alcohol in a sensible way kind of um, encapsulate it. I think a moderate amount of alcohol is very reasonable and can fit into an overall healthy lifestyle. Alcohol in excess, so heavy alcohol usage, has certainly been linked to obesity and weight gain. Alcohol is added calories, and so that needs to be factored in. The other thing with alcohol is it can increase impulsivity. And so we know that one of the important features of weight management is mindful behavior. And so if alcohol is causing impulsivity, which is sort of the opposite of mindfulness, then that might be a reason to limit alcohol intake. Having said that, I think, you know, a couple glasses of wine weekly probably is not detrimental. And it's all about moderation and making um, mindful choices. So being aware of ourselves, if we know it's going to make it harder for us to stay on plan, we might want to think twice, but moderation in general, a good strategy. Exactly. I think it's about being aware of how it affects you. Certainly for some people, it'll also affect hunger. And so if it's increasing hunger and you're noticing that, you know, when you have a glass of wine, you're overeating, then that might be something that you want to determine is, is it worth it for you or not? And is that going to be part of your personal plan? All right. So another thing we hear a lot about is insulin resistance. So tell us what is insulin resistance? And if someone's been diagnosed with it, what should they be doing? So insulin resistance refers to something that happens silently in the body over many years where your cells become resistant. So they 
stop listening to the signal of the hormone insulin. Insulin is produced by your pancreas. Uh, one of its jobs is to uh, drive glucose from your bloodstream into cells, um, either for energy usage or for storage in the form of fat. And over you know many years, for a number of reasons, PCOS, obesity causes insulin resistance, certain medications, your cells can stop listening. And so I kind of think of it as like your cells are plugging their ears. So your pancreas is like, well, I'm going to shout louder to force you to listen. So it pumps out more and more insulin. Um, insulin levels become very elevated in an attempt to keep blood sugar down. Eventually, when that ability to produce insulin to keep blood sugar down is overwhelmed, then what can happen is your blood sugars actually start to rise and we call that diabetes. Insulin resistance is also a leading risk factor for cardiovascular disease and a number of metabolic conditions. So what can we do if we suspect insulin resistance? And I will say that it is something that happens silently. So many people won't realize that they have insulin resistance. There are some physical signs of insulin resistance, like something called acanthosis, nigricanthosis, which is a darkening of the skin around the neck or in the skin creases under the arms, under the breasts. Um, skin tags, multiple skin tags around the neck is another sign of it as well. And then changes in blood sugar levels that can be a sign of insulin resistance. Exercise is helpful for insulin resistance. Adequate sleep is really important. And then lowering dietary refined carbohydrates and sugar intake is really paramount. Okay, so get more. make sure you're getting enough sleep, eliminating the sugar-sweetened beverages, and mm -hmm. also exercise. Of course, the answer to exactly. everything it feels like. <laughs> I know, I know. It seems simple, but harder to do, right? So you referred to PCOS earlier, or poly mm -hmm. polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and I know at your clinic, you help patients with PCOS. Talk a little bit about what PCOS is, what some of the symptoms are, things like that. So PCOS is actually one of the most common endocrine disorders affecting women. It affects somewhere between 8 and 20% of Canadian women. Um, wow. That range is because there's different ways of diagnosing it. And it's a very heterogeneous disease. So some features of it include hirsutism, which is excess hair growth in sort of a male pattern. So we can think about on the face. Um, it can also uh, be um, manifested as high testosterone levels, which is called hyperandrogenemia, seen on a blood test. Um, often women will have irregular periods because of anovulation or reduced ovulation, and that can contribute to infertility. Finally, it's associated with um, cysts on the ovaries seen on ultrasound, and it, there's a significant association with insulin resistance, which we just talked about as well. PCOS increases the risk of infertility for women. It also increases the risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular complications, um, certain cancers, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it is a, a really important important condition to be aware of, to diagnose and to treat. So let's say that um, someone has been diagnosed with it or they think they might have it what would you recommend that they do? So certainly it, it, it does warrant a conversation with your family doctor. If you're suspecting that you might have it based on, for example, irregular menstrual periods or you know excess hair growth on the face, that would be um, something to talk to your family doctor about. Uh, there is blood work that can be done as well as ultrasound testing to look at the ovaries. And sometimes even consultation with a specialist like an endocrinologist is, is important. In terms of the treatment for PCOS, treatment specifically focuses on the manifestations or the complications of PCOS. So acne is a big uh, is a feature for some women and that needs to be treated appropriately with medication. Uh, excess hair growth can be treated with medication and then insulin resistance can be treated with 
dietary changes. And sometimes um, it warrants treatment with a medication called metformin as well. So I think all of those um, different aspects need to be looked at. And certainly if fertility is an issue, then seeking help from a fertility specialist would be important. Wonderful. All right. I have a couple of last questions for you. One, uh, we worked with you recently uh, for an article about eight ways to stay at home and stay healthy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you spoke really, really helpfully about was sleep. Um, And you talked about how important important sleep is. And you gave some really practical suggestions on how to make sure you're getting a good night's sleep and getting restful sleep. Talk a little bit about how you work with the patients in your clinic to make sure that their sleep is optimal and why that's so important. Yes. Let's start with the why. So many, many studies have looked at the effect of, of sleep on a number of health conditions. We're just talking about weight, but it also affects a lot of other health conditions. Insufficient sleep, so reduced sleep hours is associated with weight gain and late sleep is another thing that's associated with weight gain. So people who typically go to bed past midnight, that is associated with late night eating, which is problematic with increased fast food intake as well and weight gain. And the reason for that is that um, a number of the hormones controlling appetite and our energy expenditure are tied to circadian rhythm. And so when our sleep is disrupted, it affects that circadian rhythm pattern of hormones and that can lead to insulin resistance. It leads to weight gain, it leads to a decreased ability to have restraint in the face of cravings. So coming up with a good sleep hygiene plan, um, firstly, consistency is really important. Having the same sleep time every night, weekdays and weekends, optimally, the same wake time every morning, really important. Um, avoiding screens within an hour of bedtime. And that's so challenging because in, you know, in society right now, how many people are going to bed, you know, after checking out, you know, their social media or whatever it is on their phone. So really trying to be just mindful of that and have some discipline there. Uh, Avoiding caffeine past sometime in midday. So caffeine actually has a half-life of about 12 hours. And so if insomnia is an issue, that would be important. And then sometimes for improving sleep quality, magnesium supplementation can be helpful. So if people are waking up a lot at nighttime, that can be something to try. And then there are really great apps uh, that can be used to help with mindfulness and meditation to help kind of turn your mind off. So a lot of people have difficulty with sleep onset initiation. It's because their mind just is having trouble turning off. And so there are apps like Calm or Headspace that can be helpful. And then just, you know, putting that into practice. It's not something that happens overnight. Sleep is a habit that needs to be developed just like any other habit. And so um, really encouraging patients to kind of work slowly on improving their sleep hygiene, their sleep routine. Um, and, and over time, it definitely can improve. I'm so glad to hear you say be patient because sometimes there are just things beyond our control that just, you know, we're not going to get a great night's sleep. And, you know, and it's hard to kind of nudge yourself towards waking up earlier and going to sleep earlier. But hang in there is what I hear you saying. Yeah, definitely give it some time. I mean, I have patients who are starting out and their bedtime is like two o'clock in the morning. So, and I generally want to aim for 11 o'clock. Well, that's not going to happen overnight. So what I encourage them to do is actually just shift it by 15 minutes a week and allow it to be a slow process. So maybe this week you're targeting 145 lights out and next week it's 130. And then slowly, you know, developing those healthy habits. 15 minutes a week feels A, very 
doable and be not just one of those really drastic changes that you can't stick to because it's like, you know, yeah. you, you know you've been doing this for however long. So let's take a step back. We've talked about sleep. Talk a little more about the lifestyle changes that you help the patients make that you see at your clinic. For anyone who's trying to manage weight, what are the fundamental skills and habits that they should be putting in place? Okay. I love this question. I want to even take a step back further and explore the why, because the why of weight loss is critical when we're looking at behavior change. Losing weight is not the end goal. No one is living for achieving a certain number on the scale. We are human beings who have values and goals and we want all, everyone wants to live a rich and meaningful life. And so weight loss is really just a means to an end. And it's actually really helpful to explore that bigger reason. So weight loss is for the purpose of achieving health, both physical, psychological, and emotional. And health is for the purpose of living your best life and living that meaningful life. So in my clinic, we actually talk a lot about what it's called core values, um, really exploring who you want to be. And then once you have the who you want to be, you can start asking questions like, okay, based on who you want to be, what are things you need to start doing? And based on who you want to be, what are things that maybe you are doing right now that you need to stop doing? We look at actions and behaviors based on uh, this concept called workability. So rather than judging an action or behavior as good or bad and placing this moral value on behaviors, we look at them according to workability. And that's just asking the question, is this action or behavior working to give you the life that you want and to make you the person that you want to be? And if it is, we call that a towards move, then awesome, keep doing that. And if it's not, if it's taking you away from the person that you want to be, then can we explore skills building to help you to stop doing that behavior and do more positive toward um, more of those towards moves. It's not really weight management as in let's achieve a number on the scale. It's about how can we support you to live your best life and accomplish all of your dreams and, and be that person that you want to be and live out your values. So values-based committed action is, is so important. And that's, you know, once you know what direction you want to go and who you want to be, that gives you a much more compelling reason to do difficult health behaviors because nothing about managing weight and losing weight and maintaining that over time is easy. It's all difficult. You know, it's difficult to exercise. It's difficult to be mindful of your choices. It's difficult to practice restraint in the face of cravings. So why is, why are you going to do it? Um, it's not to achieve a number on the scale. It's for all of these other reasons. So once we've kind of established that why and really reflected on values, then we can start looking at um, building skills to support those towards moves, moves that take you towards the person that you want to be. You know, skills might be self-monitoring. So you Using uh, a journal, it can be an app or a paper journal to monitor your behaviors. Um, you know, what's your food intake, your emotions, perhaps, how's your activity going? And there's so many different technological um, resources to, that can help with monitoring, whether it's a Fitbit to monitor your activity or, you know, using my fitness pal to, man to monitor your food intake. Um, and then looking at trigger control. So, are there certain foods that really just shouldn't be in your house because they call your name from the pantry and that your safety ground? is practicing self-control at the grocery store instead of trying to have self-control when you're tired and stressed at nine o'clock at night at home, right? That's way more challenging. So really looking at minimizing in what's called environmental food cues, things in your environment that may be triggering that reward center in the brain that we talked about earlier and driving urges and wanting and really being aware of creating an environment that supports you making the best choices that you can. 
Sometimes it's talking about planning in advance. So, you know, when you're trying to make decisions about, oh, is this a good food choice or, you know, is this a better food choice in the moment of impulse? As soon as you get into that debate in your mind, oh, like maybe just one time, this is the last time I'm going to have that. Oh, I'm at this wedding and I'm never going to have this again. As soon as you get into the debate, you have lost. Your reward drive is going to take over and your reward drive is going to win. So a really helpful skill is going into situations with a plan. So going to the restaurant, you know, you're going out with your girlfriends and you have a plan of what that night is going to look like. You've planned how much you're going to drink what you're going to be eating and you stick to that plan because you made your decisions when you were able to have rational thinking rather than when your reward brain kicks in. So these are all kind of um, self-management skills that are really important to develop so that weight management long-term becomes something that patients can, can build confidence that they have skills to manage. And it's not just okay, you need to have more self-control and, you know, willpower because that just fails. Talk a little bit about if someone were to come to to your clinic, what would be the process? What would it be like for them? Coming to the clinic first involves referral from a family doctor. So we do need that. And I think that's really important because the family doctor is closely involved in this whole process, in this whole journey. And we always communicate back with the family doctor. And then at my clinic, it's a multidisciplinary clinic where we work with registered dietitians. And I have two fabulous, highly trained registered dietitians who are also trained in the behavior management um, kind of cognitive behavioral therapy side of it. So I am so proud of them. They are phenomenal. Um, I would hope, and this is the feedback that I get um, from patients, the experience that patients would have is firstly experiencing a place where they're not going to be judged. And I think that's so important because I have a lot of patients who come and they've gone through you know different weight loss attempts and they've had different experiences in other uh, environments environments where they really felt judged for their weight, that it was a shame-based kind of learning environment, which is not positive and doesn't produce good fruit. And I think one of the big differences they recognize, and I would say a lot of my colleagues who are practicing evidence-based obesity medicine would be practicing the same way of recognizing, you know what, this is not your fault. This is a real medical condition and we are here to support you. And you've come to the right place to receive proper holistic care for what you're dealing with. So I think that I would want to really encourage patients that, um, you know, if you seek out uh, a proper obesity medicine physician, that you should have an experience where you are not receiving judgment and where you're receiving um, evidence-based support, because this really is a a disease and it should be treated without bias, uh, without stigma and with um, compassion and and excellence. And respect. I mean, that's what I hear. Absolutely. People are treated with respect um, as, as they are getting their arms around this chronic medical condition. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Hyde. This has been a, a true privilege. Thank you for having me. This has been great. 